are in a series going through Isaiah, uh, the book of Isaiah. Now, this is harder than going through other books in the Bible, like the book of Mark or John or Ephesians. Those are really happy, wonderful books to study. And we're going through a book in the Old Testament. And uh, I personally love this book, but it's not what you would call easy reading. You're not going to snuggle up and just read the book of Isaiah, you know, because it's fun. It's, uh, there's a bit of a challenge to it. But if we spend the time to jump into this book, the rewards are huge. And so it means that you're going to have to maybe concentrate a little bit more than you normally would. And uh, I guess it's too late to tell you to have a Red Bull now, but uh, sometimes that helps. But I think it's going to be worth it. We're looking today at Isaiah 25. Now, we're going to read out, I'm going to read out the, the whole chapter. It's not a long chapter, but it's, uh, we'll read it out, summarize it, and then try to explain what I understand to be the main point that's going on here. So if, uh, Vic, you can click away. Isaiah chapter 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness, you have done marvelous things, things planned long ago. So we have the people of Israel are being taken over, overrun by their enemies. And you have Isaiah the prophet saying, thank you, God, for being so faithful and you're actually fulfilling the plans that you ordained a long time ago are now being fulfilled. And it's like, really? This does not look like a great plan. But it goes on to say what's going to be happening, even though they're in a dire position here. It says, you have made the city, this, uh, this, uh, the enemy is, is represented as a strong fortified city. You have made the city a heap of rubble. The fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honor you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. So you're going to defeat our enemy, so much so that the very enemy that you're defeating is going to worship you, which is a really interesting thought. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. Speaks of the comfort of God. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall, and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners, as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. So in this place where we're being overrun by the enemy, this exact place is going to be a place of feasting, not just for the people of Israel, but for anyone who would come to God. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. So this is getting to the key point of the passage that uh, we're going to try to unpack what this death is talking about. But the greatest enemy is not the enemies that are around Israel persecuting them, 
the greatest enemy is this enemy of death. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces and will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. So he says, look, uh, not only am I going to rescue you from the hand of your enemies, I'm going to remove death entirely, and I'm also going to remove your disgrace. So the, the question that we're going to ask today is what does death and disgrace have to do with one another? In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, but Moab, the enemy, will be trampled under him as a straw, as straws trampled down in the manure. They will spread out their hands in it, and as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. So as they try to get up and be strong again, their hand is just going to sink into the manure, which is a horrible picture. It's just going to sink into the manure so they won't be able to stand up and fight against God or his people again. God will bring down their pride despite the cleverness of their hands. He will bring down your high fortified walls and lay them low. He will bring them down to the ground to the very dust. So what this passage is speaking about is the word salvation. Now, if you've been in the church at all, you know that the word salvation is a really big word. It's kind of why we're here, is how do we get saved? And so Christians will even describe themselves with that word. They'll say, I'm saved. Are you saved? And so the idea of salvation is central in the Bible and in what we would value as Christians. Now, if I was to ask you, what do you think salvation means? What we typically hear in the church is salvation means that my sins are going to be forgiven and I get to go to heaven. So, Are you familiar with that? If you've been around the church for a while, you'll know that that's a common way to think about what salvation is. That uh, uh, the, just like in any relationship, if we do wrong things, it breaks the relationship. And so we've done wrong things against God, and, that, and as a result, our relationship has been broken. And so what we need God to do is we need him to forgive us for what we've done wrong, which is dying on the cross for our sins, and then the reward of that will be to be with God forever. Straightforward, yeah? Say yeah. Thank you. I feel better if this is the moment of participation. So, there is a better definition of salvation than that definition. The primary uh, metaphor or example of what salvation means in the Bible is not so much, of course it's part of it, but it's not so much the forgiveness of sins. It's this word called deliverance. The ongoing theme running through the Old Testament before Jesus came to earth was this idea of deliverance. Now, what deliverance means is that uh, the people of Israel are kind of God's, uh, they're God's people, and what keeps happening to them is that other rulers keep conquering them. 
And what Israel is constantly crying out for is to be delivered from their enemies and come under a better ruler, a loving ruler, God. And so uh, they, well, sometimes they want to be under God, and then they don't. And then uh, a ruthless nation comes and destroys them. They go, oh boy, this is a sign that we haven't followed God and been under his loving leadership. And so they come back to God again, and then he delivers them from their oppressive rulers. And this goes on and on, over and over again in the Old Testament. And so the common theme that we find is the idea of deliverance. What this is telling us is the primary problem that you and I have, and I don't think we think this way, so this is going to be such a hard sermon, but but stay with me, that the primary problem that we have is external and internal oppression. Our primary problem in life is that there's things inside of us and forces outside of us that keep pressing us down, crushing us, and destroying the peace and life and joy of God. That's the primary issue that God wants to address in us, is to deliver us from our evil oppressors that steal away the life of God in us. The result of this oppression is, in this passage, is death and disgrace. Now, just follow me a little bit longer, and I I hope that it's all going to come together. What is, how is death and disgrace linked to one another? So when we read in the New Testament about death, we see that as eternal separation from God. And that's true. That's, and that's a bad thing. We don't want to be away from God. He's our source of life. But in this passage, death means a different kind of thing. And what it means is, here I am living my life, And my enemies, these ruthless enemies, have so oppressed me and crushed me, I am so disgraced that my life has ended, not with a natural death, but with the death by the sword of my enemies. Just just stay with me. There is a value in this culture of dying honorably. And if you have had an honorable death, it means that you lived a glorious life. But if at the end of your life, if your life ends at the hand of the sword of your enemy, 
it is a huge disgrace to you. It's an embarrassment that my life is supposed to honor God. There's supposed to be a dignity and a life and a joy. And look, my death is the death of disgrace. That my enemies gloat over me and say, look at the power that I have over you. And these people of God are thoroughly embarrassed by their life, that their life is under the power of a ruthless, heartless ruler that gloats over their poverty and shame and disgrace. It is disgraceful to die in defeat. Now, here's the issue. I don't know, in our culture, if we ever think of that. In our culture, I don't think we're motivated very much by an honorable death. I don't think we think about how am I going to live my life in such a way that when I get gray hair and, and, I, and I'm on my deathbed, that I will be able to say, this is a life well lived before my God, before my family and friends. But in this culture, that's a super big deal. Are you following me so far? Is this making sense? So my question is, do you think of yourself as an oppressed people? Do you think of yourself as someone who has the potential of dying in disgrace? Now, I don't know about you, but I seldom think about these things. What I, I don't think about my life in terms of oppression and disgrace, I mostly think about my life in terms of hurt and guilt. So in Western culture, what we're mostly worried about, and this is a broad generalization, so if it doesn't apply to you, just go to your happy place for a minute and come back after I'm done. But uh, most of the time in our culture, what motivates us is we don't want to be hurt and we hate feeling guilty. So we live life in such a way that we're just trying to avoid hurt. I just, I, I hate pain. Uh, I want to live a happy life. And the only way that I can imagine living a happy life is if I just go through life avoiding all pain. And then if I cause someone else pain, I feel really guilty about that. And then I'll try to make up for that. In this culture, they're not thinking that way. They're thinking, if my pain would enable me to honor God and defend my family and walk in righteousness, bring on the pain. 
Because what's motivating me is not the absence of pain. What's motivating me is to walk as a man or woman of honor and dignity and righteousness where I will even suffer if it means that I've lived a meaningful, valuable life. Do you see how foreign this culture is to Western culture? Suffering is a badge of honor. We were, uh, we were just in the States, and uh, the States, they have this thing called an army. And uh, we, don't have much of, uh, we don't have much of one here, you know. I mean, we, anyways, uh, we try. But, uh, but there, I mean, they, they talk about their army. They, they talk about military force. I mean, to a Canadian, that's just a blasphemy. You don't talk about those things even if you think about them. You never say it out loud. And, and what, they, what you see in people in an army is, is they get these things. Have you seen them? They're called medals. And, and do, you know what, do you know what those medals are for? It's how much you've suffered. And if you suffer, they give you a medal. Isn't that great? And in our culture, we don't want any medals. We want zero medals. Unless you're in CrossFit. Right? And then, and then you... And then you I mean, yeah, I was in the mud and everything, and my team won or whatever. I don't know what it is. But, uh, but unless you're in, I mean, unless CrossFit, that's the exception in Canada. But the, but the primary uh, motivation in our culture is if I can make it to the end of life without any medals, oh yeah, I lived myself a good life, medal-free, zero medals. And in this culture, I want to live my life in such a way that it's full of medals, that I've suffered for great and valuable causes. And I so believed in those causes that it was my joy and privilege to sacrifice my life for a greater good. So when they talk about death, it's not that I didn't get to be happy, or that my happiness in life is now going to end, their primary concern about death is will I die in disgrace or will I die in honor? Isn't that remarkable? So what are signs of oppression and disgrace that we could maybe tap into this motivation in our life? Not just about the avoidance of pain, but actually to live a life of value. How could we tell that we're disgraced and we should maybe do something about that? There's a few signs of what disgrace and oppression look like. The first one, quite simply, is just defeat. Defeat over sin and addiction. Now... When I talk to people about why they would o- want to overcome their addiction to whatever it would be, um, pornography or substance abuse or, or whatever it is that's, 
that's hurting them. Um, the primary motivation that I hear people describing about wanting to overcome defeat is it's hurting me and I want to be happy. In this context, I would want to overcome my addictions because I'm disgraced. I'm under the bondage of an evil ruler, uh, whether it be alcohol or whatever other addiction. I want to overcome my defeat, not because I want to be happier. It's because it's disgraceful that I would be under the rule of such an evil oppressor. And I'm going to seek wholeness and righteousness so that I can live a life of dignity. And if I live in defeat, it's an embarrassment to me. And if I was to die in that defeat, it's an embarrassment. It's dishonorable to God, to the people around me. It's a sign of disgrace. Another sign would be hurt. Uh, we were, uh, Debbie and I were in Phoenix uh, just, a, uh, just this last week. That's why we weren't with you. We really missed you, as always. We're not here. We were, in, uh, we were in Phoenix, and Pastor Mike and Julie Gowans, they lead the church there. And he said something that I just thought was so outstanding. He says, you know, Greg, there's a difference between pain and hurt. I go, tell me, Mike, what's the difference between pain and hurt? And uh, don't get too hung up on the words, but the idea is amazing. He says, uh, pain is inevitable. It, it just happens. You can't help it, right? I mean, you're going to get hurt if you ever get close to, like, anybody. Uh, pain is a natural part of life. It's unavoidable. But he says, hurt is optional. And what hurt is is if I take that pain and I become defined by it. And, he, and it, it struck me as I was studying for this passage that pain is not our problem. But what sometimes happens to us is hurt overwhelms us. And we become defined by our pain. And in this passage, that would be a sign of oppression. That the things that have hurt you, the, sorry, the things that have caused you pain, you've let them control you and oppress you and bring you down. It's a sign of oppression. Another sign of oppression that you and I are oppressed would be fear, anxiety, where we're not walking in, in a sense of safety and peace and joy, our life is riddled by fear. Please, link your sense of anxiety to oppression. That there's an unkind ruler that's trying to ravage you and take you down and take away your peace and joy and bring disgrace into your life. It's a sign of oppression. And finally, would be fruitlessness. That it's, it's an embarrassment to not be fruitful. And sometimes, I think, as Christians, that we just see 
the call to reach the lost or to, or to serve somebody, it's just an inconvenience. Most of my life is focused on receiving love and being cared for. That's what's going to bring me joy. And in this context, the opposite is true. If I'm not fruitful, I'm living a disgraceful life. Oh, Father, do something about that. Please, bless the work of my hands. Change the lives around me. Don't let me live a disgraceful life. Oh, God, show yourself strong in my life. Don't let my oppressors and your oppressors, um, your enemies win. Show yourself strong in my life. Let me be an honorable man or woman. God's heart towards us is to bring into our lives victory and honor, not just comfort. God has come to bring comfort. It says that. You are a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. That is true about our Father. He comes to comfort, but does not end there. He comes to lift our disgrace. My friends, I feel as though in our society, it's easy to settle for comfort and not press forward into honor. It's easy to just try to survive and not press for victory. Can we be a people that long to have medals of honor? They say that we have been in a fight. And it was a hard fight. And there was pain. There really was. But we showed ourselves, even in the face of death, to be honorable men and women, defending our king, walking in righteousness. And my death is not in vain, because I fought a worthy fight. The problem is that our victory is sometimes in the future. So what do we do while we wait for that victory? And this passage tells us that we need the promise of future victory, because this is a prophecy. We need the promise of future victory to confront the pain of today. This allows us to die in honor. Now, I'm, uh, so I'm, I'm 55, and, uh, you know, I'm kind of over the hump, right? And uh, I look at all my millions of children, and they've got a whole life ahead of them. And I look, and I go, yay, and kind of, aw, because I'm super happy for them, and uh, I'm on the downward end now. And over Christmas, uh, I'm thinking, what do I have to show for this thing called my life? It was hard. And what have I, what have I really done? What have I really done? And every once in a while, I get melancholic like that, and I, I just ask myself those hard questions. 
And I'll, I'll tell you what I've done. My victory is generations from now. My victory is so big that the battle that I'm in is so big, it will take generations to conquer. The victory over evil in this city, over the darkness and pain and heartache in this city, the lack of the presence of Jesus in families, Sometimes I go, I, I, I look at doors of homes, and I go, I wonder what goes on in there, and it kills me inside. I have a part to play in a battle that will probably last for centuries, and my job is to die well. I will die before the victory is won. I know that. I know that. I'm going to die on the battlefield. I'm going to be a casualty of war. I know that. But when I die, I want to have suffered on your behalf. And I, in some small way, want to provide a gift of truth and of a life lived for the glory of my King. And that you would somehow step onto my back and climb forward into that battle. And if you would do that, I could die well. And I am praying for us as a community, that the battle that we fight would not be so short-sighted that it would be mostly about the personal comfort that you and I enjoy for the next couple years, me shorter than most of you, but that it would be our dignity to say, I have fought for the coming kingdom, the kingdom of love I have so believed in I will die in honor. God says, will, will the, Jesus says, will the Son of Man find faith when he returns? And I want him to come to this community and the other communities in this city and that he will find a people who have been faithful to their king, who have longed for the coming of the kingdom, who have advanced his kingdom in humility and love, and who have counted it an honor to suffer for his namesake. God is a faithful deliverer. And the question that presents us today is, will you, and I, will you seek deliverance? Will you refuse to be oppressed? And will you join in the fight against evil and darkness and live a life of honor and passion? Will you be that person? This is what is ahead of us as the people of God. And if you're not somebody who trusts in God, sign up for this and live a life that matters. Worship team.
Could we please stand up together? God, I just, I know in my own life, and so I just trust this is true for others. Sometimes I forget I'm in a battle. Sometimes I forget that I'm oppressed. And I mostly think about just being happy today. But I pray for my friends that you would lift the veil in front of our eyes that blanket of death, and that you would enable us to see the battle that rages around us. Give us a glimpse, O oh God. And would you give us the grace to long more for honor than for comfort. Father, I thank you that you are not an abusive ruler, and that even as we fight for you, this passage promises that you will comfort us and come near and care and hold. But Father, I thank you that that's not all that you do. You call us forward. And would you enable us as a people to want to defend the name of our King and of our family? that we would die not in disgrace, not in shame, not in reproach, but we would die honorably on the battlefield, standing for something that is worthwhile, worth dying for. Settle in our hearts this conviction to move beyond self-comfort into the life of Jesus Christ.